1: All Things Literary live at The Root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots editor-in-chief, here with the managing editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hey y'all. We are so excited to finally bring you this podcast
0: that we've been working on almost all summer. All summer, that is right. We have had such a strong response to our already existing its lit column at The Root. We really thought hey, this should be a podcast. Definitely. And it was all Maisha's idea. She's being modest.
1: I mean, she I... totally. Yeah. <laughs> she totally took my original idea to create It's Lit, as a column for literary fiction initially on the route as we received short story fiction. And she saw the vision, she had the wherewithal to make it more of a home for writers, journalists, book authors... All the folks who take to the page and create the words that are so meaningful to us that we'd love to read and absorb and be impassioned
0: by. I mean, we're out here. That's the point. We out here. And, you know, we, we already have had such great conversations. I mean, I'm actually really excited for people to hear what we've got coming for them because, man, we are just we are beautiful and brilliant people. Yes. And also, I love the title. It's lit. It is it's, lit. It is definitely <laughs> lit. It's lit at the root, y'all. <laughs> all the time. All the time. It
1: is always lit. And I hope you will, you know, all of you guys listening will bear with us since, as you know, we're currently dealing with a global pandemic. Thus, we're recording from home. So you might hear a siren, the occasional motorcycle the people who like to cuss each other out on the street in front of my building just general noise from time to time you might hear and slack so, alerts <laughs> yeah you could you could hear anything anything and everything at any given time so just be
0: warned We're going to make it work. We are going to make it work. And so let's get to it. Our first guest for our inaugural episode, I cannot be more excited, is none other than the incredible Nicole Hannah-Jones. She is the journalist behind the Pulitzer Prize winning 1619 Project, which commemorates the 400th anniversary of the arrival of enslaved people on U.S. soil and illuminates slavery's modern day legacy And our contribution as Black Americans, our contributions to society.
1: 1619 has been a print piece, and audio piece, and it will now be coming to the screens as it was recently optioned by none other than Oprah Winfrey. I mean, don't get no bigger than that. Oprah
0: optioned it. That's the tweet. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I think it's also worth reporting that, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, she's did a amazing legacy. She co-founded the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting, which is a training and mentorship program that aims to increase the ranks of investigative journalists of color based upon, obviously, her idol, Ida B. Wells. You know, and, and I have to say, when you look at what the 1619 Project has done for us and continues to do for us, I you know, it really has, I think, staked our claim in terms of major contributors to this country, or as Nicole puts it, founding fathers. We are also founding fathers of this country, our ancestors as well. And what they did with that project was just, I mean, it's beyond words, I my gratitude.
1: No, I think it's incredible. The fact that it's going to be taught in schools, this curriculum is so important. The fact that she took The original slaves who arrived in Virginia in 1619 and trace that to really, truly being the founding of America. Because, I mean, let's face it, America was built by us. It was built on the backs of cheap and free labor. And who was that labor? Stolen labor, yes, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Forced labor. Forced labor. Still waiting for that check, guys. Listen, listen, let's talk about that stimulus check. All right, well, there's no reason to delay further. Let's get into our interview with Nicole Hannah-Jones.
1: Hey, Nicole, welcome back to The Roots. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's awesome to have you on It's Lit, and we thank you so much for joining us today. You know, I don't think we've touched base since I last saw you at the Route 100, and we definitely haven't talked since you announced that Oprah would be joining you, the New York Times and Lionsgate, in producing film and TV content around the 1619 Project. Oh, and thank you again for choosing the route to help break that news.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was important that we use Black media to break the news about the 1619 project, film and TV expansion. And I'm both very excited and very nervous about this because I don't, you know, TV and film is not my area of expertise. And the last thing I want is us to produce anything like the Green Book. So I'm oh. just. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm just really, you know, I'm excited because it gives us an opportunity to expand to people like my folks back home who aren't reading 10,000 word essays in the New York Times and they'll now have a chance to really uh, experience the content. Uh, But I'm also, you know, nervous about getting into an area that I don't know as well.
1: Of course, but I feel like with you and Oprah, y'all will figure this out. I think it'll be good. I don't think it'll be
0: the Green Book. <laughs> I, I almost spit my coffee out when she said that. I was like, did she say
2: the Green Book? Yeah, I mean, everyone is clear that, that we would not be doing that. Um, okay, good. So if there's a, a you know a North Star, the, the Green Book, I guess, would be my South Star. It's not going to happen. <laughs> um, but it was important you know one of the reasons why I was really excited that Oprah was interested is to have a powerful black executive in the room uh, when decisions are being made it was really important to me. But I will say, you know we we spent a lot of time figuring out who would be the best studio to work with us on this. And Lionsgate, just everyone that I've talked to this entire time, just really got what we're trying to do and that nothing is more important to me than maintaining the rigor and the standards and the honesty of, of the project. And that means that we can't water it down. And we're certainly not going to be telling Black stories through white saviors. Uh, I would hope not. Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> I mean, because I'm like, 16, 19, like where, where are the white saviors? Is, is there one? <laughs> like, I mean, we're talking like 400, like who came to save anybody? I think no one. I think we had to save ourselves.
2: We, we know those stories. That's the whole, the whole point. When you're trying to expand the lens, when you're trying to tell a, a bigger story or a more unknown story, you don't have to retread the ground that we have all come up in. I mean, we know that who the good quote unquote white people have been in history, and they have gotten uh, a lot of shine. But our stories, you know, we don't ever get to be the center of our own narrative. And uh, the 1619 Project was both about centering us in the narrative, but also being honest that the white saviors were the tiny minority, and that that has not been our experience with most of the history of this country. And uh, our decision to always focus on those small minority of people who are trying to fight for Black equality, I think really obscures the the truth of our history in this country. So we just weren't, we weren't gonna do that. No, I I applaud
1: you for it. Don't do that, that's amazing. (laughs) So before we get more into that, because It's Lit is a podcast about Black books and writers, we like to kick things off by asking all of our participants to name at least one book that they've read in their life that they have considered to be life changing? Like this is the book that blew your mind and made you go like, made you see all the possibilities that there could be in literature.
2: Oh man, you know, that's such a hard question because at different points in your life, you have different books that change your life. And, you know, if I were talking about high school, it would certainly be the autobiography of Malcolm X. If I were talking about when I was in grad school, it would be the race beat, which went the Pulitzer some years ago. And if I were talking about as like a full fledged adult, it would be my all time favorite book, which is Isabel Wilkerson's Warmth of Other Sons. Oh. And, you know, it wasn't life altering in that I didn't know about the Great Migration, but one, you know. It's written by the first Black woman to win a Pulitzer in journalism. It's one of the most beautifully written books I've ever read, but it's also just an amazing piece of anthropology. And I think what makes The Warmth of Other Suns so subversive is it allows, it, it really posits the Black migration as a classic immigration story of people having to flee you know picking up and leaving everything behind looking for a better life except of course we were fleeing our own country for somewhere else in our own country but i think it allowed so many non black people to finally see their own experience in the black experience where they had been unable to do that before because of course their ancestors were coming to america seeking a better life and and the thought has always been well this is the greatest country in the world why don't you guys just try hard like we did and that um she's so like beautifully and poignantly and powerfully shows that that's exactly what we were trying to do, but we were doing it in a country that didn't treat us as citizens. So that's, that's probably the book that I have recommended the most in my life and that I've given out the most as a gift. Nice. No, that book was a game changer. Definitely. So
1: It's been just over a year since the 1619 Project debuted, shining a new light on the role slavery played in the founding of America. Since that time, Nicole, you have not only captured the attention of Oprah and the world and were a 2019 Route 100 honoree, but you won a well-deserved 2020 Pulitzer Prize on the same day as your idol, Ida B. Wells, was posthumously honored. What, if anything has surprised you about the reaction in the wake of
2: publishing 1619? Oh God, Um, so much. I mean, both good and bad. I I did the 1619 Project just because I felt it was a project that needed to be done. And that 400th anniversary and me being at the New York Times just posed such an opportunity to force us to reckon with this history and and its ongoing legacy. But it's not that I necessarily believed it would blow up. I mean, it's about slavery. It's about this, the whole point that it exists is we have not wanted to deal with this as a society. So while I was uh, working on the project, I mean, I had so many moments of panic where I was like, I'm going to have commanded all these resources and led this project. And when it comes out, you know, nobody might read it. No one might not, you know, no one will care. And if that happened, of course, not only would I have failed our ancestors, which is, you know, just a tremendous cosmic burden, but I also would have made it harder for every other black or Brown person who tried to pitch something really ambitious who came behind me. So, The reaction to the project, like the the project selling out, people posting like unboxing videos, school districts wanting to adapt it, um, just the amount of, of, of people I've heard from and how it went into the world, complete and utter surprise. I... You know, like you, Danielle, I've been doing this a very long time and you know that you can do amazing journalism. And that doesn't mean that you will get the type of response that the journalism deserves. So that's been a a complete surprise to me. And the legs that it's had, like it's a year later and for good or for ill, people are still, you know, talking about the project. There's still some conservative news site writing a piece about the project every single week. And that really speaks to its power. Um, I, I also knew the project was going to foster a lot of critique. Clearly, you don't make arguments like "Let's consider 1619 our true founding." That black people are America's true founding fathers. That we actually are the ones who brought democracy to this country. That uh, our system of capitalism was based on a slaveocracy. Like you don't make those arguments and not expect they're going to get pushback. That's the point. It was it was intended to be evocative, but I didn't expect such a concerted effort to actually discredit the project. Uh, It's one thing to say, we don't like it. We don't agree with it. It's another thing to have, you know, really esteemed, you know, that small group of really esteemed historians who aren't even considered conservative historians who actively have worked to discredit the project. That was clearly surprising to me. Uh, And then that a year later, you know, we would get mentioned by the president. There would be a bill introduced against the project to try to teach, keep teachers from teaching it we made it into trump's impeachment campaign like all that shit is of course no no one expected it (laughs) it's been a crazy year no i can imagine i mean in so many
1: respects like your project like it changed uh so like it it affected so much change in the world especially in the united states and people's reaction to it um I was also surprised at the number of historians who were like, I'm, you know, I'm mad. <laughs> I don't like this. And, you know, kind of went after you on it. But it just it just told me you were doing the right thing. It told me that you were you were correct and that it invoked such a
2: strong response. Yeah, what's what's, you know, interesting about that is of course, most of the historians I've heard from. Did not react that way. But when you agree with something, you don't go on a campaign to write multiple pieces saying, actually, we think this is great. So of course, those who opposed it were gonna have a platform to do so and also would not just write one piece and let it go. What I think though is when I pitched the project, my goal with my editor was like, what, you know, what what's your goal for this? And I was like, I just want people to know the date 1619. Like. Americans don't know that this day even exists. And if they're forced to confront that slavery predates the founding of our nation by 150 years, it forces you to think about it as foundational in a way that we haven't. And to see the way, and, and I won't say it's only because of the 1619 Project, but um, certainly we contributed in a major way to the understanding of that date and the invoking of 400 years in the protest movement, uh, 1619 being sprayed on icons of white supremacy and seeing everyone from senators to you know mayors to activists Invoking that, that date in that 400 years to me is, is a powerful uh, legacy of what we were able to help to.
0: You know, I I actually, one of the things I loved about the 1619 Project is I felt like, you know, we hear so often, I don't want to hear another slavery narrative. I don't want to, you know, like, I don't want to delve into that. And we hear it from both sides, right? Like, we hear it from our people, too. And I felt like you opened this door for us to have a discussion that was really, really necessary. And that... Also, justified the fact that we do still need to talk about it. We do still need to see this. This is not a part of our history that any of us should be putting away. But, you know, when you speak about legacy, you know, you've also been carrying on uh, Ida B. Wells' legacy as uh, a co founder of the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I know that the aim there is to arm more Black journalists with investigative reporting skills. And those of us in journalism, I I, I think we would all agree that the groundbreaking work that you did with 1619 brought renewed focus to the work of Black journalists. and, And more recent events have kind of demonstrated the necessity just via this like wide disparity of coverage that we've seen of, of all these persistent racially charged issues. You know, in your words, why do you feel that it's, it's vital for us to be represented in that way?
2: Well, it's so critical. I mean, you can look at the reason we named the organization after Ida B. Wells, which is that they are just stories that will never be covered and will never be covered correctly if we're not investigating them and covering them. Ida B. Wells, of course, wrote about lynching at a time when not just white folks, but Black people also were buying the narrative that Black men were being lynched because they were raping white women. And through investigative reporting, she was able to show the fallacy of that. She was one of the first data reporters in this country. She actually was the first person to collect data on the amount of lynchings that were occurring. But if she didn't do that, those that story would not have been told. And frankly, the NAACP, which she helped co-found, would have never taken up lynching as one of the issues that it was going to fight against. So we can fast forward to a few years ago when Black journalists started really reporting on police killings. And as we know, Black folks have... Known that police don't tell the truth in all circumstances, that police come in our communities and violate our rights and brutalize us. That was nothing new. But when it was only white journalists covering it, they were ignoring that story. And what changed is social media, where citizen journalists start recording these interactions and posting them online. And you could see the difference between the official report that showed up in the newspaper and the reality of what happened. So that forces then uh, newspapers, mainstream newspapers, to start taking seriously the claims that Black people had long had, which is that they're not being treated fairly by the police. So we can't cover our democracy. And investigative reporting, as you women both know, is the most important reporting because investigative reporting is that which holds power accountable. It's that which unearths and digs up those facts that powerful people don't want known. And it shows the way the power is wielded against the vulnerable. It is also the whitest of our profession, which means there are just entire swaths of the country, entire stories that are not told when people are contacting investigative journalists, uh, who's determined to be credible or not, what stories are credible or not, what they decide to dig into or not, is influenced by their race. So we have to be in these positions so that we can actually truly cover our society and our communities. And and the last thing I'll say is that the skills of investigative reporting is just great reporting skills, like looking at documents, analyzing data, doing confrontational interviews. All of these things are skills that any reporter should be doing. But a lot of times, Black reporters are not getting the training that they need to, in order to do that type of reporting. So, our uh, organization is, is trying to build a truly democratic press that actually does its watchdog role in a democracy, not just for powerful white people, but for our communities as well. Most definitely. And we greatly
1: admire that work Absolutely. that the organization's doing. Yeah. But I want to pivot a little and talk about another powerful essay about reparations that you published this summer, titled What is Owed." Uh, both the pandemic and ongoing uprisings have magnified how the various forms of oppression Black people face are inextricably linked. And you did an incredible job of illustrating that in the piece, asking, quote, when will this nation pass a stimulus package to finally respond to the singularity of Black suffering, end quote. Given everything else going on in America, people will once again say it's not time for that conversation.
2: Why do you think the time is now? So it's never been time for that conversation. And that's what I really tried to show in the essay by tracing the history that Black people during slavery... We're asking for reparations, Black people right after slavery. We're asking for reparations. Uh, Black people have been asking for reparations for 200 years after every race riot. Black people have asked for reparations. It has literally never been the right time. And a debt delay does not mean that the debt is no longer owed. You know, You and I can not pay our bills. For 10 years. And it doesn't mean that after 10 years, we no longer owe that debt because we avoided paying our bills. But that's been really the stance in this country. And I don't think you can read the 1619 Project from cover to cover and not come away with the understanding that it ultimately makes an argument for reparations, that you can't see how foundational slavery is, followed by the 100 years of racial apartheid that was visited upon the descendants of the enslaved and see the gaping gaps in uh, well-being and anything that you can measure for Black people and not come away saying, yes, a great debt is owed. There was supposed to actually be an essay on reparations in the 1619 Project, not written by me. It didn't work out. But that was you know divine intervention or something, because then it allowed me to actually write a reparations essay, which I wanted to do anyway. So we were going to have a reparations essay in the book the book project. So the 1619 project is also expanding into a series of books. The adult book will be out next year. And so there was going to be reparations that say in the book. But as I was watching these protests and seeing, in some ways, you know, all of these symbolic dominoes starting to fall, like all of a sudden, we got Juneteenth all across the country when that was impossible before, right? And suddenly, you know, NASCAR decides, actually, it's probably not in our values to like fly the Confederate flag or allow the Confederate flag to be flown. And the sustained nature of the protest, like it did feel, I I don't feel that way anymore, but it did feel for a second, like we were in this potentially transformative moment. And I just kept thinking like, I can't wait until next year to to make this argument for reparations. Like I, I have to make it in this period where our country seems on the brink of a real reckoning that if we don't deal with the economic catastrophe that has been visited upon Black Americans' lives for generations will have come away with this having solved nothing. Because everything that people are marching in the streets for in terms of policing and all of that, these are rights that we already have. They're just not being enforced as our rights. But transformation means like you have to deal with that uh, economic rape that Black people have experienced over generations. And I really wanted in that moment to push that into the national lexicon and say, if you're not talking about economic justice right now, you can't really be talking about a racial reckoning. And it's not that asking police not to kill us in the streets is superficial. I'm clearly not arguing that, but what I am saying is even if no unarmed black person or no black person period ever gets killed by police again, we're still going to be suffering in every aspect of our life. And we have to we have to do a bigger ask than that. So, I wanted to, you know, really piggyback on the legacy of folks trying to legitimize this conversation. As you guys know, even you know, really up until Tanahazi's uh, case for reparations, you couldn't even bring up the word reparations and be taken seriously. And even after Tanahazi's piece, you still couldn't see it in mainstream political conversation. But there's there's been movement on that, and and it seemed like you know, my moral obligation to make that argument in the middle of this global and racial pandemic.
0: You know, um, I'm glad you did, because, you know, when when you published that essay, I personally I remember halfway through the essay, I broke down crying because you so clearly illustrated everything that was at stake. I, I mean, you know, and, and like you said earlier, it's like, I know, you know, obviously I know all these components that lead to uh, a, a more profound racial injustice than we tend to talk about in 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 our typical conversations. But seeing it all together on the page was deeply emotional for me. And, you know, obviously, you know, reparations, I think, I think you're right. I think it it has become more legitimate, In the political discourse. I think a lot of people saw Barack Obama become elected and they expected all of a sudden we're going to talk about reparations and that didn't happen, right? Um, And I can see why it didn't happen. But, you know, with Kamala Harris now in the running for the vice presidency, um, I personally expect that to start resurfacing. And I actually sat in on a live taping of her on Jamel Hill's Unbothered last summer. And Jamel asked her, uh, You know, she was running for president at the time, and she asked her what she thought about reparations, and Kamala said, it's complicated. <laughs> and specifically, she said, so her quote was, the worst thing I think that can happen is that checks get written, and then everybody says, okay, stop talking about this now, without addressing the in systemic inequities that are deep and require investment. So that's why I say, it's complicated. What do you say to that?
2: Um. <laughs> I think that that's just deflection, honestly. Black people hear that right now without reparations, right? Black people heard that after Obama uh, was elected. Well, racism is gone now. You have a Black president. Black people hear, I mean, welfare apparently was reparations. uh, Affirmative action apparently was reparations. So the notion that we can't fix this specific economic harm because then... Black people won't be able to complain about our oppression anymore is a deflection. I think Black folks would much rather not have to be, you know, a week away from poverty and deal with racism than being a week away from poverty and dealing with racism. Right. So the, the idea that you somehow if, if you pay reparations, that will stop us from addressing the 400 years of harm that we have refused to address anyway. I just think is it's a way to both deny the necessity of reparations, but seem like you're doing it for legitimate reasons. When really what she's saying, when she says it's complicated, is that it's politically complicated, that it's not seen as a political winner and that we can look at the statistics on this and even white Democrats, majority of them oppose reparations. So that's what she's saying. So just be honest, just say there's not the political support amongst white Americans to do the right thing here. And don't try to say like, oh, we can't do this because then Black people can't ever complain about their oppression anymore. I, I just, I, I don't buy it. And you know what was important with the, the reparations essay is, one, I don't use the word reparations until the very end intentionally, because I really want to force you to go through this entire argument and then Say that you don't think that this is the right thing. But if you start with reparations, it automatically turns so many people off because when it comes to black folks, we have this, you know, gut reaction, a very visceral, ugly reaction to the concept of reparations. And the beauty of having thought about something for 20 years of having seen every argument against it is I, could stack every last one of those arguments up. I know every single argument that's going to be made. And I know the research opposing it. And I set up every last one of those arguments and then knock them down. That's kind of the beauty of of being able to think about something for a long time. And I think the reason that it works coming after the 1619 Project was, it was important to me what, what people really responded to in the 1619 Project was that I was taking modern America I wasn't just doing a project writing about this is what happened 150 years ago. I said look at America today and I'm going to show you the direct link back to slavery that what we see in our society today has a direct link which is at my pettiest an argument you know to what every Black person hears which is slavery was a long time ago just get over it. But On the most intellectual level, it's showing we can't get over it because our country has not gotten over it and our country has not dealt with it. And if you want to claim the Declaration of Independence and say that those ideals still impact us today, then you have to claim slavery, too, and say that that institution, which is not an ideal, but a practice that was supported by ideals, impacts us today. And I think that is what really helps see the ground for an argument of reparations is to show that we are still suffering from that legacy. Um, And all of the things that we say Black people need to do on our own to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, actually, uh, scientifically, and in terms of social science and data, have been shown that they won't work.
1: No, I definitely always bristle at the argument that, oh, slavery was long ago, and (laughs) like, my grandmother, who is 92 and still with us, her father was born a slave. So it's just like.
2: There was just a, Post, a Washington Post article about uh, one of the the last known children of an enslaved person. And he's also in his 90s. But the other thing is, we don't even have to go back to slavery, right? Like my father was born in apartheid, right? Uh, John Lewis was a living victim of racial terrorism and legally sanctioned apartheid. And What we're going to do though is what we've always done is wait for all of them to die off and then make the argument that there's no living victims of that either. So it's not really that people don't understand that there actually are living victims of these legally sanctioned systems of oppression against Black people. But they just want to, as a historic, or excuse me, economist Sandy Darity says, delay until death. And that's been the way that we have handled Black Americans and uh, our inequality is delay until death. You
0: know, when you introduced 1619 Project last August, I remember you tweeting that, uh, and it's still on your page, the lead tweet, is that you wanted people to understand the place that we as Black people had in the building of this democracy. Obviously, right now, our democracy, as dubious as it is for us, is at serious risk. What, at this pivotal moment, would you hope that Black people understand about our power, if any, to preserve and hopefully
2: transform our democracy? Oh God. You know, we've all been seeing for months now that Black people and Black women in particular have to save this democracy, even though we're about 7% of the population of this country and one of the most uh, disenfranchised. So, you know, our role in this country has always been to be the moral force and the reminder of what this country is supposed to be and really the reminder of these founding ideals that have never really been true for most Americans, but that we have had to believe in. But we, you know, it's not on us. And I think the unfair burden you know, I occasionally argue with people on Twitter. Um, and I was just <laughs> arguing with a woman yesterday who was basically like, if Black people don't control, you know, the fringe element in these protests, then Trump is going to get elected. And it's not on us. Like, we can't single-handedly save a democracy when we are 13% of the population of this country. And that is We didn't vote for trump we're not going to vote for trump if trump wins it's going to be because the majority of white people or enough white people in key states voted for him and so while on the one hand i wanted my essay to really show this unparalleled role that black people have played as a democratizing force in this country because we are raised to think our main contribution was our brute labor picking cotton which was a massive contribution, but it is not our sole contribution. And I really wanted to reframe our understanding of the role that Black people have played as as the perfectors of democracy. But I don't mean that to be that this is our burden and that somehow we can fix this white supremacist, country where we are a tiny minority who, by the way, are fighting just to be able to have exercise our franchise today, just like we've always fought to exercise our franchise. So I, I don't want to send that mixed message. We should have a tremendous amount of pride in our history and the fact that we uh, haven't voted for fascism. We didn't fall for the okie-doke. You know, when, when Trump was doing the Muslim ban and campaigning against Latinos, even though we're the ones fighting for these low wage jobs with them, we didn't fall for it because we don't have the ability to have some blind view of America. And we understand that whatever racism that you're trying to implement against someone else is always going to end up coming back to us. But it's unfair to then ask us to be the saviors of a democracy that we largely still exist outside of. And to put that burden on us as if we don't have enough burdens, uh, I just think it's too much. No, it's exhausting. Like black women, black people were literally the
1: conscience of this country. And it's just like, what what more do you want? <laughs> right. Even as we're
2: being told, you got y'all gotta stop protesting or you're gonna push white people to be racist and vote for Trump. Like no, you can't, right? Like, that's the thing. We're, we're both seen as the conscious, but also told to, like, shut up and sit down or we're going to force white people to vote for uh, a man with fascist tendencies. Like, that's the contradiction. We're not the problem. And, no. and, and if I hope anyone takes anything away from my opening essay in the 1619 project is when I say after 400 years, when we finally realize that black people have never been the problem, but that we are the solution. And that is just, that is just the truth. So we're, we're not the problem. And I refuse to allow us to be framed. It's like, if we don't show up to vote in the right numbers, or if we protest and those protests start to make white people anxious, that somehow we'll be blamed for our country becoming a shithole country. Like that's, that's not on us.
1: Uh, definitely. I would argue we currently are a shithole. <laughs> I would too. I, was I like, mean, look, our passports
2: are good almost nowhere right now. So, uh, yeah. Like Trump did it. He did it. We guys. can't even get out.
0: <laughs> we cannot
2: even get out. I think there's like four countries that we could travel to. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. Nicole, I want to thank you so much for joining me and maisha in this conversation. It was enlightening to talk to you as always, and affirming. It's yes. always affirming hearing from you. Um, you do such amazing work, and we wish you all of the best with. The future of the 1619 project the fact that it is continuing the fact it's going to be the book the fact you have this project with oprah like we are beyond thrilled and fully support you here at the root and at it's lit
2: thank Absolutely. you and thank you both for uh, the work you always do amplifying our voices and our folks so i appreciate you thank you
0: the root presents it's lit is produced by myself maisha kai and michaela heck our sound engineer is Ryan Allen.
1: If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show, and we'd really appreciate your help in spreading the word. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me at Black Snob on Twitter or at
0: Belton Danielle on Instagram. And you can find me at Maisha, that's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A on Twitter, and Maisha Kai on Instagram.
1: And before we go, you know, this is our first, first podcast of It's Lit, and I want to start a tradition.
0: I love traditions. (laughs) Yes. Let's, let's create something We've new. We've been making 400 years worth of traditions in this country. Why not?
1: Exactly. Let's continue the tradition of Black people making traditions. And what I want to do when we close every show is to talk about what you and I are reading. Hey,
0: now. It's like our own little book club. I love it. Exactly. Exactly.
1: The Maisha and Danielle book club. <laughs> Get it. Get into it. Get into it. So, Maisha, what are you reading these
0: days? You know, I... <sighs> Revisiting our legacy in in the United States is always fascinating to me. And I'm a Chicago girl, and I've been revisiting a bit of my legacy here. One of my favorite books of all time is The Novella Passing by Nella Larson. And I've been studying this book since I was in college. It's a book that starts in Chicago. It it goes to New York, which is very much like my own (laughs) life journey. Um, But it's so beautifully written. And it really, you know, I think reflects on just the damage that white supremacy has done just even in the ways that we interact with each other so it's a book I revisit often and I'm revisiting it again now yeah I've read Passing very beautifully written book
1: so important Harlem Renaissance absolutely yeah yeah Harlem Renaissance era novel so good Um, what I'm reading right now is The Black Count a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of author Alexandre Dumas father. My. His father is, like, amazing. Like, you know, this is a Black man. He's a biracial Black man from what is now present-day known as Haiti. And his father's life was the inspiration for Dumas' most famous book, The Counts of Monte Cristo.
0: I mean, that whole family is really incredible, right? I mean, like... yeah. Wasn't he a general or something? I mean, like, the first black general was that Dumas himself. I mean, it's it's really... Uh...
1: That, that was Dumas Sr. Okay. Was the first black general. I
0: mean, our history is so deep. Like, it, I mean, yeah. we've been out here doing this for... <laughs> this is this is forever. 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 Since forever. Forever.
1: <laughs> forever, ever. You know? And so, like, Dumas' father, like, sounded amazing. My favorite story, real quick, a little anecdote. Um, when... Napoleon decided to, you know, expand into Africa and they're in North Africa and they, the troops are all there and the natives see Napoleon, you know, Napoleon's like a little dude. And so they're just like, oh, who's this little guy? But when Dumas rolls up on his horse and Dumas is like a six foot tall, gorgeous black man, the people are like, oh, he's in charge, right? He's in charge. That guy's in charge. You're not, that little guy, that little white guy's not in charge. Clearly, clearly it's this black man. So um, the book is amazing.
0: So I mean, I, I, I think I you just said that. a word there. I think you just said a word about the development of all kind of Western civilizations. And I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right. That's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week.
0: Keep it lit, y'all.